Welcome to the politics of gender. We are discussing today. Well, we had a problem from some of our last podcasts, which is that we keep on talking about construction. And we've been suggesting that um, there is actually a way in which construction is not just this crazy thing where you get to say, I get to be whatever I want to be, and then you get to be it, um, but a way in which it is a fundamental part of human experience. Mm-hmm. So it seems to need a justification. Right. Or uh, another way of looking at, at it is um, what what are the postmoderns getting right? Yeah. Uh, it's true that we do construct uh, worlds and we do construct cultures and these uh, are massively powerful and changing how we uh, see and actually literally shape the world. So what does that mean from the Catholic conception? That's what we wanted to begin with. Totally. That's awesome. It seems to me, Maria, that a construction doesn't, just to consider the meaning of the term, it doesn't rule out a prior reality. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is the point at which we've critiqued the postmoderns, right? right? Is that whether or not they're articulating some kind of reality that is the object or subject, I guess, of their construction, they're at least being totally agnostic about what that could possibly be. It's like mm-hmm. if it's there, it's this sort of milling abyss that's just swirling around onto which I project my power. Right. So you really do at that point have an opportunity to create anything in a way that cannot be tested against reality. And this has been kind of the constant critique. We can't just go back into infinity. At some point, you have to have a construction of something. Yeah. And this just seems to be on the face of it, the meaning of the word. Right. A construction mm-hmm. is a construction of something, and it is the gathering together of existing materials into something new. But that has to mean that there are materials to gather. Mm-hmm. That has to mean that there's something upon which to work. Right. If I hire a construction crew and I say, just use the abyss, it'll be fine. <laughs> Whatever they build would probably suck. Or if you told them, I would like a house, but please only use feathers. <laughs> right. Also wouldn't work. Uh, so today, I think what we're we're going to be doing is looking at where we're seeing this idea first in the Catholic tradition with Saint Thomas. Mm, cool. So we begin there. Um, then we move to Genesis, and then finally, I think what's going to be really helpful is start looking at uh, different ways that the different ages have constructed gender, and it's from seeing that that you can actually come to understand more and more the the power of construction in a way and and see what we're actually doing throughout history. You probably wrote really organized papers like in in school. Yeah, I did. That was very organized. <laughs> That's what we're doing. It's um been determined. So, uh yeah, let's let's jump into Aquinas, right? Aquinas. Yeah. So, um the place that we wanted to begin was the treatise on law. Um and uh even though it's it's just looking at this small portion of reality, the same pattern can be mapped onto other places, into culture and gender. Um, and I have notes. All right. We'll take it away. So um, Aquinas begins with an understanding of law. It's an exterior principle of acts. So it moves you to do something, but mm. it's not coming from the inside. Mm-hmm. It's coming from the outside. Um, but what he notes is that there's different kinds. Um, so the first uh, kind of law that he begins with is eternal law. 
This is the highest ideal plan, and it's essentially divine providence. Awesome. So in many ways, uh, we can see eternal law being manifest into the second type of law that he talks about, which would be natural law. So it's just the created order itself. Wow. Like there is according to divine providence, according to the eternal law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D- you know, this right away is already kind of showing the cards of the Catholic vision of construction in, in the sense that if you're beginning with an eternal law, mm-hmm. um, if you're beginning with a plan, then you're not beginning with chaos, mm-hmm. as it were. Right. Um, so, so he writes that all things in some way participate in the eternal law, um, and that's through their own natures, mm-hmm. um, participating with God's eternal order of the cosmos. And there's a very particular way in which the rational creature, mankind, participates in the eternal law. And it's, it's different in the way that um, other things of nature participate in that law. It's because we can do that freely. Mm, and there's yeah. also a lot more creativity that comes along with yeah, that. Yeah, like a rock can't choose to fall to the ground. It does it according to its nature. Its nature is its participation in the eternal law, whereas man is participating by way of a rational nature. Mm-hmm. Sometimes also as a rock falling to the ground, but that's because we're bodies. <laughs> um, but uh, where it gets tricky is that uh, a rock really only has one trajectory. It's just down. But when it comes to human beings, we have uh, a natural law that we follow, especially when it comes to morality. But that's not always expressed in the same way. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets more complicated. And this is where Thomas starts talking about human law. Um, so it comes from the precepts of the natural law, um, and this is why uh, we see natural law being talked about in the, the foundational documents of America, this idea that we have this natural moral intuition that's there from God, and then the human law is simply our expression of it. So uh, a classic example would be honor your father and mother. Um, this is a part of the eternal law and part of the natural law what it means to be human, but the way that every culture expresses that doesn't have to be the same. So in America, we have Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, you give your mother flowers. You do something special to acknowledge her. And it gets to the point that if you do nothing for your mother on Mother's Day, then you are actually not honoring your mother, even though the actual day itself is arbitrary. Sure. Yeah. You become a lawbreaker because human law is free. It's creative. It's not to say that it's um, creative in the sense of arbitrary, and it's not to say it's free in the case in the sense of relativistic, but it is saying that it is up to us mm-hmm. to decide how we will instantiate the eternal law into the world. Right. So we can kind of think of it with the analogy of architecture that we were talking about earlier. You you have to follow the laws of physics. You can't mm. build a house out of feathers. Um, but that doesn't mean that there is only a singular way to express a house and that you have to build it. We see a really beautiful constructions of architecture from all across the world. And there isn't a, a singular way it has to be done, but there's certainly wrong ways that it can totally. be done. Yeah, you can mess it up. That, that, that's funny because that is sort of how the cosmos feels. It's like, go ahead, do anything, but not as in anything works. But like you have an infinity of possible right things to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's kind of exciting too. And I think yeah. everyone knows this, that when you actually have more freedom, when you are given limits, like 
Yeah. Someone asks you, oh, go write a paper, the topic, anything you want. Like oh, that's I just the that. absolute worst. I know. People do that for like applications and stuff. Like, ah, this is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you're actually told uh, a specific instruction, then then you're forced to be creative in a new way. Even if you don't like the thing that you're being told to do, mm-hmm. now you have an opportunity to creatively respond to that. And so it's kind of a like a fun project it's an exciting project that we're, we're given a world with uh limits and now we have to put things together in new ways that maybe we weren't expecting or wanted them to originally and that way we actually can be more creative with the limits that we we're given totally i mean if you think about this is going to be a hot take i apologize but you think about like <laughs> the limitation of art uh leading like okay what am i saying with the digital world we have everything accessible to us all information available to us pretty much any any um anything we want to make we can make and we make a lot of crap instead of making really interesting stuff whereas if you look at um i don't know like the renaissance where they were obviously constrained in their materials in in a major way nevertheless the very constraints led to like the perfection of how to make marble really cool for instance mm-hmm. yeah or even the constraint of time so yeah. you can just make things so quickly you just end up having stores full of really kitschy art right yeah uh you walk into someone's house you're like ah yes everything here is decorated by target yeah fantastic but when when art can only be produced through time uh yeah that constraint actually gives you enormous creativity okay so we are world builders and the way we the way we build worlds it's hard to say (laughs) is through law and i think already law is, is just coming to mean something that i think most people don't take it Right. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a written thing that you have to do. Um, it is that movement from, it is that instantiation of the eternal of, of divine providence into a particular world. Um, and I think we know this, like we know that law is obviously not just written law. It's like, how is your, how is, you called it, a, what did you call it? An, an external motion? A, external principle of human external action. principle yeah you think about if if it's as general as that right an external mm-hmm. principle of human action you can see how um even the way we shape our roads and our architecture and our like where we decide to put trees or not put trees or where children are allowed that is all shaping even if it's not positive law it's just mm-hmm. the way we're doing things in the world this is shaping how we move mm-hmm. determining in some way how we move um throughout the world and so it really is a description of world building generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, the, the, <laughs> the first thing I thought of was a skate park. <laughs> skate park. I mean, so, so you like, you have like this, this space and you're con- constrained to that space, but it's in this like very limited mm-hmm. space that you can actually come up with something really creative and just awesome to watch. Yeah. And I think that this is in Genesis as well. In fact, I think that Aquinas is sort of doing a commentary on Genesis in some ways here, right? Mm-hmm. Fair to say. Or am I jumping? No, 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 no. I, I think that's the next move to go because once you start seeing uh, this notion of law as just expanding, um, it's not just rules that are written down. It's these principles of movement, um, these exterior principles of movement. Then you start to see that it encompasses the things that we actually literally build, the way that we actually govern people. 
and the way that culture does that as well. Yeah. So you might say that it seems to us that Genesis is a story that very accurately describes what Aquinas is describing theoretically as the vocation of man, the task of man given to the original man and woman, um, mm -hmm. that it is to instantiate the eternal law and human law, and that it is not... It, it, and that involves everything, how we build, how we talk, how we move, what we name things. Yeah, so Adam's Adam's task is to be a, a world builder, and it's not it's not to live in this static paradise of Eden, but he's supposed to take these raw materials and actually make something creative. And you know, it's always struck me that he's given a garden and not a forest, right? Mm. Because the garden is the prototypical image of the constructed reality, whereas the forest right. is the image of the unconstructed reality, like what nature just does on its own. Why isn't Adam given a forest? Because that's a that's the liberal um, state of nature myth, like especially Rousseau. Right. And they always, when they think of man, they always think of him as a savage in a forest in some way. And I think there's a de it's deliberate. Well, at least it's fitting, at least to their mm -hmm. worldview, right? Because what the Christian narrative is saying is precisely that we create we within a created order we construct within a construction we make within something made we give within the given like at mm -hmm. each point we are dealing with a prior reality which is not a negation of our freedom but an encouragement of it just like you said mm -hmm. um and that's expressed i think beautifully in that what does god do when he wants to make man well first he makes a garden and he arranges it and he makes a certain number of fruit trees and he places it uh uh, he, I think it even says he plants a garden at some point in Genesis between these four rivers. And and so when Adam's placed there and told to till and keep, we have to understand, I mean, and it'll come up later in the Genesis account that God is is described as walking through the garden. So we have to understand that Adam is tilling and keeping in a thing that has been tilled and kept for him. Um, and I think that's a very important um, account of man that is not you cannot just equate that with other uh origin stories of man that something is being taught there uh, and it is to help us love the given and encourage us to construct with it i think yeah and i i think it's also important that man is a is supposed to be a part of this world from the beginning and that creating a garden and creating constructions is not a violent imposition onto the world. This is a part of the created order there before Adam enters into it. Totally. Um, and so what he's supposed to do is continue God's creative work. Uh, we are supposed to be the image of the creator in creation. And so that means being creative ourselves. And we can't create from nothing. We, we create from things with natures that mm -hmm. have limits. Um, but in that way, we can actually be like our creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it retains the obvious infinite difference, right? Since we don't create out of nothing, even though at the same time, because there's a difference, there's a likeness. Um, now the the line that I really like is it says in in the Genesis accounts describing um, the world before man, and it says there were no plants um, in the field because there was no man yet to till it, mm -hmm. and it's one of those lines that gets totally passed over, but that's again expressing the cosmic nature of man. The plants waiting for him means just what you said, that it is fitting that mm -hmm. he will construct them into a particular order, right? This is the greatest critique of all conservationalism, which is that <laughs> like 
people are like, look how man has, you know, just ruined the world. Yeah. It's, it's, although I mean, we have, we have ruined the world, but we've ruined it by being bad builders, not by being, um, not by being the gardener, but yeah. by being absolutely terrible gardeners. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, uh, I wanted to move from there. So if the, if the plant is waiting for Adam, there's still a question of what, what is he waiting for? Mm. And then, um, the other thing that we find in the biblical narratives that what the garden is supposed to be is not just Adam's creative enterprise where he can do whatever he wants and just have fun. He's supposed to be building a garden temple world order. Um, and I think you can, can see that when you start noticing that the, the language between Eden and the temple imagery in, uh, later on in the Torah start really overlapping. And you can tell that that's what the author was intending from the mm, beginning yeah. is to make this, this connection. He's supposed to create uh, an order in which um, creation is raised up uh, and participates in Adam's worship of God. Mm -hmm. And again, this, there's no one particular way that this has to be done. Um, that's part of his enterprise, but it's again, not pointless or directionless. Yeah. I think about the the part um where Adam names the animals as expressing what we've said, which is that Adam gives them a name and Judith Butler has this it's like the one time where I just think Judith Butler is not like wrong in a way that's difficult to find out, but she just made a genuine mistake. Which is she says in an essay on Kierkegaard, um, in her book Senses of the Subject, she writes about um, Adam's, uh, naming. And she says that in Adam's naming, he seems to take over the prerogative of God by naming. And then she lists things oh, that really? he names. <laughs> she says the sun and the moon and the woman and such, which is not true. Uh, Adam doesn't name those, the sun and the moon in particular. That's funny. Um, so, but what I think it, it's not just a silly mistake. It's, I think the, the problem of the queer theorists generally and the postmoderns when they look at the fact that she thought that that's what was happening in the Bible mm -hmm. is indicative of the problem, right? Because they see Adam naming and their presumption is that he must be usurping a prerogative of God, right? So his naming can only be univocal or, or identical to the kind of naming that God does, right? Like, like it's competitive with the Lord's right? because okay. for them, I mean, for all practical purposes, the constructions that humanity offers really are ex nihilo. Like there is no nature that's telling Adam to name it one thing versus another. There's no nature of the plant, right? By which it's waiting for Adam is it's waiting for Adam to perfect it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Maybe I should slow down. What I'm saying is what God gives, God gives things. Things have natures. Natures have ends. Like you can perfect things. Mm -hmm. There's not just one way to perfect something, but they all have one perfection, right? There's something proper to them. There's a way yeah. of being that's proper to them. And that's what governs um, Adam in mm -hmm. how he deals with, for instance, the plants. So he can do almost anything with the plants, but he can't do violence against them, which would be to treat them not according to their nature, but, mm -hmm. but in some other manner. And similar with animals. I mean, he can quite literally 
do anything with the animals, organize them in any way he wants, use them for whatever they're useful for, but he's always guided by their nature and he can never be violent, right? He can never say, okay, your nature is to eat this, but I'm going to force you to eat that, for instance. And we know this, mm -hmm. it's simple. Um, and so when Judith looks at it and thinks, okay, well, he's not naming in accord with something in response mm -hmm. to a gift of things which have natures, which comes from God, but is instead asserting something competitive with God. I think that is the postmodern view of Adam. That's the postmodern Adam. It's just another God. Um, yeah. Uh, and when you were talking, there's there's two things I was thinking of, um, I guess, two, two fears that people could have when reading the Genesis text. And one fear is that um, Adam doesn't know the nature of the things that mm -hmm. he's naming. And so his naming is automatically a violence on them. And I think that's where we find ourselves in the fallen world. We're not in tune with the nature of things. We're not uh, accustomed to take things as being given and discovering them, especially in the modern world. Um, so it's a, it's a fear that we easily fall prey to. And I think that is that postmodern assumption that we just can't get to know things in and of themselves, which is precisely what the Genesis narrative is, is saying that in Adam's walking with God mm -hmm. in the garden, this is how he can come to know the thing's nature and come to know them properly mm -hmm. and name them properly. And then the second thing I was thinking too is the other, other fear or maybe um, kind of the postmodern insight is that they, they do recognize the power of naming and whenever you name something, it always limits it in some capacity. Totally. Um, if you if you decide that uh, this horse is now going to be a workhorse, you've limited it in some capacity. Um, but in that way, it actually can like manifest a real creative option. It's only in the limiting that you can get there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that seems to be... Um the whole story of Genesis, I would just add to it that obviously the reason that we are talking about construction is because we want to talk about gender construction. Um, and in the creation story, um, it's not the case that Adam is, as it were, naming for himself or by himself, right? Um, the, <laughs> like the tradition is, um, that when God gives Adam this law, um, which you might think of as a sort of, um, in, in some ways, it's like an articulation by God of, it's like a divine law in the sense of it's an articulation of eternal law uh, by God he, to not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. The traditions held that it was up to Adam to give that law to Eve. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that comes from this, which is why Adam is really um, complicit within the fall um, because the, the, fall of Adam within the Christian tradition has always been considered as a failure, um, not simply to resist the temptations of sin, which obviously that's there, but also a failure to properly instantiate the law. To communicate the law. And it's not to say that he was supposed to communicate it like identically, um, but he was supposed to communicate it creatively and perfectly. Like how are they going to live together in such a way as to obey um, the law, to live according to the, mm -hmm. to the garden that God has given? Um, and so right from the beginning, we see that one of the meanings of sexual difference, one of the meanings of the fact that man arrives twofold is that he's always already giving 
he's always already constructing the world for others. So he's, he, it's a social act. Mm-hmm. It's with another and it's for another. Um, and I think that's, that's another, um, difficulty that the postmoderns have is that because they have this view, it's always an individual, um, um, construction of the world, an individual act of naming an individual, um, volition that's constructing the world in a certain way that just excludes the way other individuals might construct other mm-hmm. individuals might name. Right. But from the beginning, there's this conception of the naming being for the other person and, and naming being judged as bad by not being properly ordered towards the other person in some way, mm-hmm. um, or, or the law giving, especially. So it's supposed to be a, a social project. It's a big old world for all the people. Right. So, uh, I think we can move from the vision that Genesis lays out, um, into constructing gender in, in the way that we're talking about. So the task of humanity is to construct a world, uh, that is meant to worship God and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a particular way. It just has to be in accordance with the natural law with the givens that we have been given. Uh, and this means that you can do it wrong. Yep. And so I and think that there's a million ways to do it right. Exactly. So, um, one of the helpful things for me was seeing diving into one of the ways that, uh, humanity got it wrong after the fall. Um, in particular by looking, giving, uh, like reconstructing a different origin story of gender. And we've kind of mentioned the, the liberal origin story, the forest. but, <laughs> uh, there's one that comes before that. And that comes from, uh, Greek culture. Oh yeah. Is that a cue? Yeah. Segway. The Greeks, baby. So I realize that you're never going to be able to do one big broad brush. Here's what the ancient Greeks thought. Okay. Right. Um, but we We're can see. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> yeah. So you can see obviously that within the status of women and, and by extension men, within Greek culture, there's something obviously very different about our culture and very different about Christendom. Um, so we know things, I think, I think we just all know that like women weren't allowed to be a part of the polis. Um, Mm -hmm. they weren't citizens. They were classed alongside slaves and children in terms of their status, um, that the Greeks had, um, for instance, no, no real difficulty in the idea of the sexual life being fundamentally androgynous in the sense of, um, it could be, uh, a same sex, um, outlets on children or slaves or a, a lover. Um, it could also, and, but that doesn't negate or exclude having uh, a wife, um, that there were different ends. Obviously like the wife is, um, for the sake of children, for the sake of the home, there is a certain recognition of the beauty of that and the importance of, of marriage. Um, but there is also within Greek culture, the sense of that being inferior, um, in terms of love that, Mm -hmm. that the ideal relationship is going to be between two men. Um, okay. So that's sort of a, 
basic broad brush understanding of like, okay, that's obviously a very different culture. It's a different construction. That is mm -hmm. a way of being male and female. And, and I think it's important to realize that that's what it was. That is what was being constructed. Yeah. And that's what was uh, being experienced too. Yeah. And I think sometimes like people who are very troubled by the admittedly troubling, um, um, like transgender issues today can sometimes have a very rose tinted view of the past because we'll say things like, well, at least they understood what a man and a woman was, right? Like mm -hmm. at least they had this sense of like a binary gender that was fixed and, and maybe the relationships weren't great, but, and I think, okay, there's something to that, but it's, <laughs> it's also the case that like, well, at some point, if what you think a woman is, is a passive object that can be classed in importance alongside a slave um, and a child, which can all be passive objects of a active male sexual um, drive for domination, which is a, just a basic summary of like uh, the, the Greek conception of um, sexuality here. Uh, I think we're talking about a, a different kind of being, you know, like we're talking about a way of constructing um, what is given that just seems wrong. Yeah, or, I think we don't have to be scared to say that. Um, yeah, what, it's wrong in a different way, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're not saying. Sure, I agree. They're not saying that it's just a psychological act of identification that you know someone with any body can make. Mm -hmm. Sure, that's that's a. I think that's a different way of being wrong. But, but what it means to be a woman at that point is to self-conceive of yourself in a very different way than what it means to conceive of yourself as a woman in America. Yeah, and I think that those differences have to be. We we are utterly incapable of not viewing um, ourselves, and maybe this is just true of people in general, right? As the pinnacle of history, such that um, are such that we can look at back on the past and then sort of say, okay, well, these they were missing all of these things, obviously. Um, okay, but the construction of um, male and female came from an origin story. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that it only comes from an origin story or that there's some kind of like direct causal, like someone sat down in the middle of the, of the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Agora. I know uh, what you're talking about, <laughs> but I can't think of it either. Um, and said, um, this is the origin of women, right? Rather it's this mutual thing. Like the reason they told the origin story was, was in part because they're describing the world around them. But mm -hmm. the reason the world around them, continues to be the world around them is in part because they have this origin story. So it's this mutually reinforcing um, thing. The origin story, I think, is one that we're very familiar with, namely that um, in the beginning, there was no sex. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, there are men um, who are immortals and they live with the gods. And we, because because we are sexed, have no capacity to envision that without imputing sex into it so that mm -hmm. man living with the gods was in fact men living with the gods, mm -hmm. right? But you have to remember that sex is, it cannot be thought outside of the other sex. Right. Like if you are to really think of a world of only men, you're not thinking of any men because mm -hmm. a man only is a man in, in relation some relation to, to a woman and woman mm -hmm. only woman, some relation to man. So like we can have these thought experiments, which is essentially what they were doing. But we should also recognize at the same time, which many feminists did, they were like, oh, yeah, they say that it's just a sexless world. But obviously, what the sexless world looks like is much more in the image of males than it mm -hmm. is females, which is totally true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just uh, right on the on the nail there. Um, okay, so there, there there's this world without sex. 
It's full of these immortal men, and they are living it up. It's the golden age, um, and then things go wrong because things always go wrong, right? And the way it goes wrong is... Didn't they make a god upset? Yeah, you're always upset in a god one way or the other. And the, <laughs> it was like a squabble over the sacrificial meal. Um, That's right. Who should get the fat? Who should get the bones? And um, That's what I argue about I at the dinner table. That's actually the... <laughs> the the Prometheus, I think, helped the human beings here because he tricked the gods um, by hiding the fat under worthless bones mm -hmm. um, so that the humans ended up with a good portion. And boy, were the gods mad. I mean, they needed that fat. They were, they just loved it. And so that is when they got the idea for woman. Not the best moment for you to enter history, but welcome. Glad you're here. And they said, Here okay, you're going to gonna trick man. us by taking the thing that is good and hiding under it the thing that is bad. Very well. We shall trick you by doing the same. We will take uh, the human, the man um, that you love so much. We will construct something like him um, that is in fact a curse. And that curse is woman. Um, and this is Pandora. Mm -hmm. And we know Pandora because she has a box and she is a helpful music station for finding new songs. Sponsored by Pitt. No, I'm just kidding. Also jewelry. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Ugh, you know. They're really I... dumb charms. Oh, okay. Are they, in, do they work? Uh, do they give you protection? No. Okay. So Pandora is there and she is a construction of the gods, quite literally. And with her, man is inaugurated into a sexed world. So man becomes men and women. Um, and this is a fall, right? This is mm -hmm. everything horrible. This is the loss of immortality, right? Uh, it is the beginning of reproduction where reproduction is not considered as some like glorious unity of the sexes, but is considered as a consequence of death. Like because you die now you must reproduce. Mm -hmm. and so you were, you were eternal and the way that you can preserve your eternity is by you dying, but at least it lives on in someone else. Right. Exactly. And, and it's fascinating because the thing that's produced precisely to give, um, death to man, what you're right, because she opens the box and unleashes every single uh plague, plague or yeah. evil for man. Um, he can only be saved from that precisely by turning to the woman to reproduce. So it's not so only she's the necessary evil, yeah, 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 exactly. And it, and it, okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, there's woman for you. Um, now. It's not the case that I'm saying like, well, because they had this origin story, everyone hated women and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, every woman was considered a Pandora or anything like that. Um, but what is apparent is that sexual difference was conceived of as a fall. Mm -hmm. And this is very consistent with myths surrounding the Jewish people in the Near East, um, that sexual difference is in some way, um, the loss of some prior unity. Um, and this is a way of thinking about gender. It's a way of constructing the world, right? Mm -hmm. Where there you're always referred to some prior reality that was better to which sex is a loss. Sex destroys that prior reality. Yeah. So there is a, it, the relationship between the sexes lacks a fundamental goodness to it. Mm -hmm. And in some way there always operating in a mode of despair yeah there is this is fundamentally not the ideal and it, it cannot be returned to in this life yeah and sexual relations 
um, are always reminders of the fall, right? So sexual relations mm -hmm. have something tragic about them because they always remind you of death. Um, and so what the Greek city-state was, um, was the attempt to have a kind of new immortal life in the Greek city that was born without woman, that was quite literally excluding women because it was mm -hmm. an attempt to get back to a original unity, original wholeness. I mean, you think about this is the way we in fact view, I mean, not really now in modernity, but it is the way cities, ancient cities were viewed as having an immortal life. Like, mm -hmm. okay, I'll die as an individual maybe, but the, the city is greater than me and it will precede me and Rome is eternal. And basically everyone that had a city always said it was an eternal city of some sort. Um, and it's not by accident that those cities are also excluding women and trying to somehow mitigate against the appearance of women as being some substantive fact, but always needing to say, um, well, that this is a modification of something prior. This is a fall or a loss mm -hmm. um, that happened, but it is not the truth about man in his fundamental origin, which is that he is immortal. Mm -hmm. We can get back to immortality and this would be natural for us. Um, yeah. And you, you see that same idea shaping their biological assumptions. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think is this in Aristotle? Where uh, he, Gallon. the understanding of of how a woman is is formed is kind of like a freak of nature incident or a common freak of nature incident. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the male seed is yeah. obviously going to produce a man. Yep. Except it's... if the weather is a little bit different today, if it's cold or hot, I can't remember. Cold. Cold. Then yeah. you'll end up having a, a female, which is. A, a being that was supposed to reach the perfection of man, but didn't quite make it. Right. Yeah. So you can see the female as being um, a deficient man in some way, which there's a lot to be said about that. But I do think that you're right. The biology falls from the origin story, which falls from the political reality. The point mm -hmm. that we're trying to make is that a whole world can be coherent and constructed. Well, maybe I shouldn't say coherent because yeah. I think that insofar as it is sinful, right, it's still somehow at war with reality. And I think mm -hmm. you see this all the time in like Greek comedies, right, where, uh, okay, you can have this vision of like the supreme dominance of the male um, within a society in which women are essentially passive, right? But what comedy is is showing that, well, but that, that's not really true, right? Like mm -hmm. men can be cuckolds and such. The Greeks and medievals loved making fun of men for being cuckolds. <laughs> um, okay. So my point being, that's a particular construction. And what we've noticed here in just discussing the Greek construction is that uh, a construction can be bad mm -hmm. um, and that it can be creative and free and wrong <laughs> yeah creative and free and wrong and and it can still uh retain a certain fittingness like it it, it yeah in, in some ways you're like okay i can understand the idea of like a um a deficiency in woman because if if uh we're going to like produce something that's more strong in general women are not as strong as men and sure. so that could seem like oh well you just didn't hit full maturation and what it means to be a human person so there's a kind of fittingness they're reading the world but then they're mapping on a wrong story mm -hmm. a wrong cultural mode to it so it's just it needs correction mm -hmm. yeah it needs conversion um and i guess that's that's a world that christianity enters into mm -hmm. um bringing the 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 genesis story so so you walk into 
worlds that have already been constructed. Uh, not every culture is going to have necessarily the Greek conception and just maybe they do have that in common. Maybe they have similar origin stories, but it doesn't mean that the social worlds that the people inhabit look the same. Um, there's certain things that men do and certain things that women do that don't correspond in every society. That's the world that Christianity is entering into and providing this new origin story where yeah. a woman is not uh, a fall of man. And in fact, the ideal was not ever that man was divine to begin with, that he was totally always creature. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually the, the Jewish, I was going to say Jewish myth, but obviously I think it to be true. So I don't mean myth as, as to say like a falsehood, but myth as to say an story. origin story. Um, the Jewish myth is rare. It's a rare bird mm -hmm. in that most people, it seems left to themselves tend to come up with some idea of woman being a curse and mm -hmm. sexual difference being the rupture of an original unity. And, you know, there's various, you know, really different ways of putting this, but that does seem to be a general, um, thing that humanity thinks up for itself without a doubt. But right in the middle of all that, you have the Jews saying male and female, he created them, which I take pains to show this elsewhere. The Genesis text is a polemic. Mm -hmm. So the Genesis text is not just about the business of like a liberal sort of contribution, like, Oh, here's our story. You can put this on your shelf with other origin stories. It's like, no, no, no. It's an argument. It's very aware <laughs> of all the other stories and it wants to say they're wrong, right? So when Genesis, for instance, says that God created the sun and the moon, it's aware that the Egyptians have a sun god, right? Mm -hmm. And the Hittites have a moon god. Mm -hmm. and, and saying that these things are in fact creatures is a demotion of them in the other myths, right? Mm -hmm. Or when it when it lists the animals as just sort of spilling forth from the earth at the command of God, I mean, they know the Egyptians have animal gods, right? This right. is this is one of the great critiques they have with, with, throughout the Torah uh, mm -hmm. and into the wisdom literature of of um, the Bible that that um, the Genesis text cannot possibly not be concerned with in its in its reduction of all of all uh, creatures to their proper status or what it's saying is their proper status, right? Mm -hmm. So that when it says male and female created them, we have to say, okay, we're right in that context. We are demythologizing. We are we are making an argument. We are doing polemics. We are saying Egyptians are wrong, and Sumerians are wrong, and Babylonians are wrong, and Hittites are wrong, and and what are they saying? Well, they're saying first of all that male and female, an original twofoldness, a split, is good. Mm -hmm. It is not a fall. It is part of the original creation that God said is very good. Yeah, and the, and the fact that Eve is called a, a helpmate. It, it's funny because you can look at it and, and <laughs> you can take the, the, the feminist angle and say, this sounds like a demotion of mm. a woman. But in this context, this is absolutely a promotion. She's <laughs> it's a promotion of Pandora, right? <laughs> yeah, she's, she's no longer the, the evil seductress. Yeah. She's actually supposed to be a helpmate in building this temple world order. Totally. Yeah. And, and so you have, okay, sexual difference is good. The original division is good. The twofoldness is good, um, which again, like it's very shocking to think that because it just seems like everything, all the inertia of history tends into this, this sort of pessimistic, like, well, the curse of woman, right? 
Um, so it's good, and it's also the it's it's also at the same time saying that man is not divine, right? So um, one of the ways in which God is not like man is that God doesn't have sex. God is not does mm-hmm. not suffer that you know division into um, male and female, and Whereas every other society, it seems to me, ends up lamenting this, right? That mm. we are less than God and that we once were God. So you think about, you know, uh, in, in Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes tells the story of of a, a, another origin story in which, you know, in the beginning, man was androgynous, um, like literally male and female combination. Uh, and was, that a, was that an actual spherical image? Yeah, if I'm remembering. Yeah, they, they were <laughs> just remember reading it for the first time and being horrified. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like the sexy androgen, you know. It no. was like the big round ball. <laughs> I forget where the genitals were, like, but it was never like you always had to kind of draw it and be like, "Oh gosh, okay." This is horrifying. But despite 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 the roly poly uh, situation <laughs> here, there was at the same time. Um, Aristophanes says that Zeus was worried about these um, androgens because they were strong and they threatened to scale Olympus, right? So right yeah, there- Yeah, they would just roll up that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so right there, you have, I think, like a perfect summation of what's maybe more typical, like when reason is just left to its own, the kind of things it, it, it likes to think up, mm-hmm. which is that, okay, man was originally strong was originally divine or at least comparable to the divine if the divine mm-hmm. was threatened by it, right? Like we're competing on the same field here. Right. Um, and that where somehow where the strength comes from is the is the lack of sex or the lack of sexual division. Mm-hmm. So he kind of gives us a literal sense in that in order to weaken man. There's uh, a literal split. There's a literal split. And I think that the image used is of a wire splitting a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> Sorry, we can't get off the roly-poly thing. We're really trying. But, but okay, so now man is split, and so he's weak. And so, again, humanity in the state that we find ourselves thrown into is conceived of as a weakened mm-hmm. state. It's that we were supposed to be comparable to God, and now we're not. So our lack of divinity is an agony. Our lack of divinity is a curse. Our lack mm-hmm. of divinity is not what should be. Like, we're owed better. And so life is essentially pessimistic. It's it, it. whereas uh, within the Jewish tradition, it's like from the very beginning, man is little less than a god, and that's mm-hmm. precisely his glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's precisely what should get up him up in the morning excited, because the fact that he is not God means that he's the reception of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that he can receive the gift. That means that he can do things like love God, for instance. Because and it means that he has a mission. He has a yeah. mission-oriented life. Um. Yeah, totally. One of the things I was thinking is that if if this is your conception of fallen humanity, then in a lot of ways, what's wrong with the world goes can just be traced back to like sexual differentiation mm-hmm. instead of sin totally. being the actual problem. Yeah, and that allows you to solve the problems of the world by um, attempting to abolish. Um, the any meaningful cultural expression of sexual difference by doing essentially what I think the Greeks did, which is to make the world or like the, all, the world that was important be male mm-hmm. and for the female to be a deficient version of it, operating within it, necessary for things, necessary, but tragically necessary. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be necessary, but the fact is it's necessary um, in order to 
propagate the city. We must have women and such. So you have a definite constructing of the whole. Um, and it, and so, so to, to compare it, then you also have the definite Christian construction of something mm -hmm. where sexual difference to be a woman is always to be a reminder to yourself and to others of the non-divinity of man mm -hmm. and to bless it, to say it's very good that we are not God and vice versa. To be male has to mean at some fundamental level that in the original creation, we are not sufficient unto ourselves um, mm -hmm. and that we are not God and that this is very good. Um, right. So, so yeah. in, in the past, uh, it might be obvious that there are men and women, but what that actually means mm -hmm. is obviously not so clear if it's so easy to be wrong. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. And I think as we've discussed with queer theory and the liberal account of like the LGBT plus sort of account, um, I think that it's not even quite true to say that, well, now we have this new problem in which we don't have the categories man and woman. It's like, no, no, no. I think we're just dependent on them in a deeper way. Like now we have to know what man is and we have to know what woman is in order to negate it, in order to be something non-binary, for instance, or third gender or, you know. So I don't think it's quite the case that we're in some like phenomenally new scenario as it were, though it is different. It's a different mm -hmm. construction. It's a different world. I mean, we're mm -hmm. different atoms uh, going about, going about, well, I was going to say a different garden, but I guess it's the same garden. <laughs> okay. So there's two constructions, the Greek, and then on a real basic level, the sort of Judeo-Christian, although obviously that goes in wild directions. And mm -hmm. and then I, I think kind of a, the next construction that we can look at is the convergence of those worlds. So when Christianity is going into different cultures, uh, encountering their constructions and then meeting it with a new origin story and what kind of world emerges there mm. in pre-modernity. Pre-modernity. And that's when we started uh, venturing into the work of Ivan Illich. Look at this. We both have the same book. Isn't that nice? 1982, um, Ivan Illich was a fascinating guy, like knew seven languages, walked all around America starting language centers, and generally hated cars, airplanes, <laughs> teachers, government. Anything institutional. Basically. So we're not um, – I really like him in like a fond way. I'm extremely fond, fond. of him. Like I, I can't even tell you. My heart just warms when I think of him. But I don't agree with him all the time, so grain of salt. This is not like the ur-text of um, the new Catholic gender theory. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is a text and a good one. Um, but he has some really uh, valuable insights. And I think the most significant one when he started investigating what gender is uh, in pre-modern societies um, is the idea of the gendered world. Yeah. Yeah, because he doesn't have – and in some ways it's hard to talk about this without describing our own world because mm -hmm. it's such a distinction. But a gendered world, he is distinguishing from sex. So when we say gender now, I think we mean like, well, gender is the nebulous sort of linguistic stuff. For Illich, when he says gender, he means almost precisely the opposite. So he's talking about like the real thing um, and sex as like the – 
gloss on top that we do later in modernity. So I'm, I'm, that can be confusing, I think, sometimes reading Illich. Yeah, I well, I, I think it's helpful that he points out uh, that originally, and he doesn't use gender like this, but he points out that gender originally was not a description of bodies. Mm -hmm. um, he says that the word has changed to be sexless in a way. I have a gender and you have a gender, mm -hmm. therefore the term itself is sexless. It's not describing one or the other. Um, right. But gender originally was a grammar term and it was describing the fact that uh, nouns are male, female, or neuter mm -hmm. in pretty much every language. Mm -hmm. um, and you can move from that insight into what he's talking about with gendered worlds. There's a, a reason why people naturally started naming the world in that way. Um, and you can kind of think of it as um, as this construction of, of people noticing like a certain uh, fittingness maybe between the symbol of the earth, Terra in Spanish, I think, um, and uh, how that is connecting to the feminine. Um, both are nurturing, both produce life. And so these cultures will start to notice these connections. Mm -hmm. And then a language, a vernacular language, emerges out of that. And so the way that you encounter the world is, is uh, yeah, it's not uh, a sexless world. It's a gendered world that you inhabit. Yeah, it's and it's hard for us to imagine because he's not saying that there is this one world that some people have a male view of and some people have a female view of, as it were. Um, but when he goes into like anthropological studies of different peasant, pre-modern peasant cultures, um, what he notices is that the world really is divided in terms of the actual life and work. Um, the tasks of men and women are part of two asymmetrical, complete wholes. So it's not that there is this sense of like, okay, the world is uh, this whole and I'm going to do some male stuff within it. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that I, as a male, have this particular world in which I move. I understand that there is a woman's world, but I um, don't know what that's like. Yeah, I think and he it's... says that you can, uh, you, you, you can comment about it but you can't actually enter into that and you're always wrong uh in some <laughs> on some level you're always wrong and, and i think this is we already know this on levels where we're not so like institutionalized like when men say to women things about what they think women are like women always laugh and it's not <laughs> yeah. because men are like are just oh you just big dolts you don't understand it's like they're usually right on some like superficial level but they don't get it mm -hmm. on some other level and, and similar similarly like the reason that women have a bunch of cliched things that they say about men, um, but are always a bit wrong. It's like men are rowdy or whatever, but men are rowdy, but aren't rowdy in the way that women think. Um, they're not rowdy in terms of what women mean by rowdy. They're doing something different. Yeah. We're, we're, we're using that term in like our own gendered world. Exactly. And that's the term asymmetrical. What it means is, that both conceive of the even the relationship between the two worlds differently. So it's not just that like there's two worlds. It's that what women think the male world is is not what the males think the male world is. Mm -hmm. And what women think the women's world world's world is is not what men think the women's world is. So that there's there's two um, worlds that can't be simply homogenized or 
or sort of zoomed out far enough that you can see them as two separate entities within a space. I mean, the idea is that you're always in it. Like if you're a man, then you're always um, bound with certain tools and certain tasks and certain songs and certain ways of moving and certain ways of thinking that um, you can't see your way out of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think I recall uh, Zizek uh, talking about um, the asymmetry. Mm -hmm. um, so well, to read a little bit of Illich, actually. Um, so he says that, yes, the, the complementarity between genders is both asymmetric and ambiguous. Asymmetry implies a disproportion of size or value or power or weight. Ambiguity does not. Asymmetry indicates a relative position. Ambiguity, the fact that the two do not congruously fit. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. Um, I think uh, Zizek kind of un unpacks this well when he's criticizing the, the yin-yang yeah. symbol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, right. We have this... Uh, idea that Can you do it in a Zizek impression absolutely not yeah. <laughs> um but we have this idea that uh here we have two perfect halves and we put them together and we get this full and complete picture but what um both Illich and Zizek are pointing out is that the two don't fit in this perfect puzzle piece sort of way mm -hmm. um that there is a, a tension because the way that we conceive of each other's worlds are different mm -hmm. we don't have the same conception of each other's worlds and and maybe that sounds kind of ridiculous to say but i think that's really true when we think of the interior world mm -hmm. like as a woman like i do not understand the interior world of men i can come to uh, closer understandings, but because I don't actually inhabit that interior reality, there's things I just can't know. Yeah, and it's 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 true of I think men in general, and it's also just true of like the individual personal level. Yeah. Like there's a way also in which I can't inhabit the world of another woman. Yes, but there is a space that we can share. There's an immediate understanding that we can have. Yeah, you can you can intuitively have the common life of woman so um then when he writes at the end of this uh footnote and i have some agreements and some disagreements with what he's saying but i think it's helpful um so what he when he's saying is that the the way that they are complementary in the way that they relate to each other is metaphorically and not antithetically um so the way that the the gendered worlds relate to each other especially in pre-modernity is through uh metaphors your world is like unto mine but it's not the same um it's also not antithetical it's not opposed man really is not the complete opposite of woman i mean we just know this is not the case right i mean there's there's many things that we have in common and so but they're still not exactly the same so metaphor seems to be a much better term we yeah. are like each other but we're not like each other mm -hmm. and then uh um he he starts talking about the word exchange um and and basically what he's he's commenting on is is modernity having kind of a more uh sexless uh genderless understanding of human persons um, but that has a tendency to drive people towards an even clearer fit 
whose asymmetry therefore tends toward hierarchy and dependence, where exchange structures, relationships, the common denominator defines the fit, where ambiguity constitutes the two entities that it also relates. Ambiguity engenders new partial incongruities between men and women, constantly upsetting any tendency towards hierarchy and dependence. Okay, that was a lot of words. I totally get it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is he, he talking about? I think what he's getting at is that when you accept that the sexes uh, are metaphorically related to each other, the gendered worlds are metaphorically related, and it doesn't have to be a perfect uh, fit, then it's going to constantly upset totalizing one or the other. Totally. So yeah, I said totally. <laughs> uh, so you're not. Uh, he 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 says that if if you have a conception. Uh, where it's uh, like perfectly asymmetrical or perfectly like oppositional, it's going to tend towards hierarchy and dependence. The man is the breadwinner; he goes out and does this. The woman is completely dependent in her suburban household. Sure, it's going to inevitably lead towards this like clear fit, this clear. Well, you role. can you can see some of the inevitability of it if it's true that neither uh, world can. If it's true that they're asymmetrically related, mm -hmm. that means that when a woman conceives of something that – so <laughs> what I mean is this. If we say something like, well, we're all humans and male and female is just the modification of this thing, human. Mm -hmm. But if it's true that we're occupying different worlds, um, then your conception of the human is not going to be my conception of the human. Like our our understanding of the thing that is – we're trying to say is beyond sex and gender mm -hmm. is going to be itself sex and gendered. Like it's going to either be thought by a man or thought by a woman. Right. And it's obviously the case that within modern liberal societies, that when we think of the citizen, when we think of the human, when we think of the thing that um, is then modified into male or female, or can then be understood to be either male or female as the secondary attribute, we're thinking of something a lot more like the male vision of himself than we are of the female vision of themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's right. So there's a way in which it it is when we posit, and in some ways it's very similar to what the Greeks were doing. Like when we posit some third thing um, that's neither male nor female, but towards which male and female are, are modifications, um, then that's naturally going to lead to the totalizing of one um, world over the other. So you're not actually mm -hmm. going to get uh, that the male and the female world are both equal. You're going to get the total dominance of the male world. For instance, I mean, I think that's actually what's happened. I think theoretically yeah. you could have the total dominance of the female world happen, but that's historically not, I think, what's happened. Right. Yeah, this, is the, this might be kind of a weird example, but I thought it was really interesting when he brought it up with the introduction of the clock. Um, so, uh, with the invention of the, the clock, you have kind of a, a reconceived notion of time. Mm. It's not something that, uh, nature speaks to you. Um, it gives you the impression of, uh, just this like ticking that just goes on and on mm. and on yeah. forever in this forward progressive motion. Yeah. 
And the connection that he's making there is that that tends to swing towards a like a, a male experience of of time, just forward and progress, just plunging on towards my death. Whereas here. the the female experience of time is going to be different because she in her body experiences seasons, yeah, all the cool. time, every month, especially if she becomes pregnant. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I think at some point Edith Stein said like if if men and women are different is because they're supposed to teach each other mm-hmm. um, what they learn in those differences. Uh, and that's actually a different way of, of describing it. It's not – what she's not saying is that there's a certain negation of the male and female world for the thing that they really occupy, which is the human world. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, the difference between the unit – well, the difference between the unity of two asymmetrical worlds and the, and the kind of unity of a homogenous – human world in which male and female are just attributes um is the difference between well i just said it, it's the difference between unity and homogeneity like we can be unified because we're all equal and all the differences don't matter or we mm-hmm. can be unified because we're actually engaged in a unity in which we're um learning from each other actively mm-hmm. or like speaking to each other or i think dancing was the um, yeah. metaphor that so if you used. if you actually live in uh like a, a, a gendered world where like you recognize that men and women uh, occupy like asymmetrical worlds that are metaphorically relating to each other. Then you have this, this image of teaching each other and also this image of, of dancing. I think this um, yeah. kind of shows up around this section when he starts talking about tools and when researchers started uh, looking into pre-modern societies that <laughs> um it wasn't always the case. Like maybe, maybe when we look back on a pre-modern society, like we kind of um, a little anachronistic. We just Im- impose the current system onto the past, oh. and we think that there's. Sorry, it's my wife. <laughs> we think that there's some kind of um, uh, really obvious sexist divide. Like the women were in the kitchen, the men were out in the fields and they didn't cross paths. And that could happen in some societies, but it wasn't always the case. Um, what, what happened a lot of times it, it seems is that in the same space, there was different tools for men and women. So they, they, they occupied the same spaces, but they, they occupied it through their gendered world. And so I think in one of them, um, uh, he gives the example of the the sickle and the man i'm forgetting what the other word was it was basically the exact same tool right slightly different yeah one was for the men one was for the women and in in no way would you ever touch the other person's tool right like it would it would be shameful for you to do so but Mm -hmm. using your correct tool was a part of your dignity and occupying your station in your world yeah absolutely i mean at some point he said because the other thing is we're so caught up in uh, a certain vision of modernity in which when we think of the past, we think of male, like the the 1950s version, male breadwinner, uh, like we think of a particular construction, right? Mm-hmm. But what he's describing is a construction in which men and women are working together in different ways. So it's not like who works. It's like there's female work and there's male work. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point he describes in this one society, a, a cow being basically divided in terms of what 
things were done by the woman and what things were done by the men. So like the women could wash the cow, but the man could kill the cow and the woman could butcher this part of the cow, but the men could butcher that part of the cow. The idea is not to describe some kind of like psychotic, positivistic, like gender regime (laughs) of like women do this and men do that because they're not describing anything positivistic. There's no law. There's no spoke. Well, there's a law, but there's no like spoken word Mm -hmm. here. What it's describing is the way of maintaining and celebrating. It seems to me the difference um, for the sake of unity. Like the, the point is that when you have two worlds, then you have the fun of union for which marriage is a sort of prime symbol. When there's two worlds um, that are really two worlds and not just, you know, variations within one world, then you really mm-hmm. have the possibility and the surprise and the unanticipatable nature of like a marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be that that's what I mean, I hear this sometimes like when I'm listening to people chant at the mass and when they divide up the like Kyrie between the men sing it and then the women sing it and the men sing it. It would be wrong to say the beauty of that is in um, the kind of comparison of the differences um, as if like, well, you're all singing the same song, but women have some parts and men have some parts. Um, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like an introduction into a world that I don't understand and a world I do understand and a world I don't understand and a world I do understand. And that ability to dance between the two seems to be, um, really a great part of the festive joy of life itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what Illich goes on to argue is that this is the loss of gender, the loss of this basic pre-modern call it wisdom if you want. I mean, we're not trying to like gild it because it could be, it could be unjust and wrong in, in how it was performed. Mm -hmm. But the loss of this basic, um, asymmetrical and ambiguous duality that split through human culture basically describes the rise of modernity. I mean, at some point Mm -hmm. he says that like capitalism is predicated on the destruction of gender. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a a part that I wanted to read just because it's fun. It's kind of like the cow story. Uh, so he says, a decade ago, I listened to a Serbian peasant telling how haying had been done a generation back. He described gathering, loading, and storing the hay as if the work had been a ballet in which men and women each danced their appropriate parts. While he spoke, we were watching how things were, how things are done now. Haymaking has turned into a unisex job under workers' control, which any hired hand can do. With a mixture of sadness and pride, the old man looked at the young woman who was driving the tractor of the village commune. And then he goes on in, on his comments. Um, yeah, so so we move from being a, a world of gendered dance to uh, a sexless world where the male still tends to be prioritized. And that's another one of his his critiques is that in the unisex world, women still suffer. Yeah, so this is the sort of last construction we want to talk about. And I know we've already been doing so in order to set off the the um, vision of pre-modernity here. But um, it is in some ways just another way of constructing gender, but it has a sort of special emphasis because it's denying the existence of gender. So in some mm-hmm. ways, it's a little more destructive, um, a lot more destructive. But the basic idea is what we've mentioned, that with modernity, you have a new construction of male and female as modifications of what's fundamentally a neuter term, namely the human. 
Um, and Illich um, says that this is basically equivalent with the um, homo economicus. So the idea is that um, male and female occupy the same world. They're doing the same sort of thing. They're after a same kind of um, genderless end, which is money or self-interest. Um, and this, um, this can't but put them in competition where previously they weren't compared. Mm -hmm. This is something that people often don't think when they think about sexism. They presume that it comes from a, um, a lack of equality. But it's actually right. only between things that are proposed to be equal mm -hmm. that we then feel the agony of like inequality because we're saying something isn't there that should be there. So mm -hmm. what I mean is, for instance, like no one sits there and is saying, ah, how terrible that three-year-olds can't drive. They're, you know, being <laughs> oppressed in some way. It's like, no, no, because we all say that, okay, they occupy different worlds where different things are due to them mm -hmm. according to who they are. Um, we don't feel the injustice of a difference, mm -hmm. but when it's two men with who are basically the same, um, then we would feel if one man couldn't drive that there was some injustice being done, and something like this is happening in Illich's description of the necessary sexist nature of modern nation states. So he mm -hmm. says this over and over again, like the nation state is not like maybe one day it won't be sexist. It's like, it is This sexist. is what it always is. And the reason it's sexist is because for Illich, it's predicated on the destruction of gendered worlds. It's saying we're all occupied in one task. It's highlighting the citizen or the human or the worker as mm -hmm. being the thing which exists. So in this, in this mm -hmm. way, it's a reference back to the Greek idea of some, some prior sexless reality being mm -hmm. the true reality, uh, which is then modified into like a female or male experience. But now the female and male experience are compared. They're on an equal playing field. It's mm -hmm. like, well, here's one human experience and here's another human experience. And then, and they occupy and a, the same world and guess, guess which one looks better. <laughs> right. In a, in a competitive world, people rise to the top. A hierarchy ends up emerging. Um, so I don't know, like a, a really easy example would just be uh, in sports. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, when, when men and women are on the same playing field, men will excel and the women will fall behind. But then when you have your separate gendered worlds, then you really are able to see the talented women shine for the amazing athletes that they are. Sure. Yeah, and and what's hard is because we're so entrenched, obviously, in our world. I don't need to say mm -hmm. this. It's just what it means to, to live, I guess. Uh, is that we can't help but read into all past the competition we experience in the present, right? Mm -hmm. So like the woman who, you know, he says at some point, he's talking about um, work uh, within medieval society, he says uh, on feast days, it was clearly specified that men were to abstain from the hunt, from tree felling, from the building of stockades and women from hoeing, shearing lambs and pruning trees. So he's talking about that gendered world. And we, mm -hmm. we can't help but think, of the woman if she is forbidden from doing one or the other as mm -hmm. longing for it in some way. And the man, if he's forbidden from, you know, the same thing, longing for access as it were, because mm -hmm. we're presuming the um, sexless unit as being the real thing. And then the male and female being this more negotiable modification of it. Mm -hmm. um, but where there really isn't that comparison, there isn't envy, there isn't there just isn't the comparison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there isn't the same competition. Now, this is not to say that there can't be things that are um, unjust, like that women and men are unjustly excluded from. Remember, when we talked about constructions, we're still only talking about them in reference to a real given. Like you can actually do violence against the nature of woman. You can actually do violence against the nature of man. There are things right. due to him. 
but it's not because they are equal sexless units. Mm -hmm. Whenever we try that, then it seems so far what's happened is that the female has simply paled in comparison and become the object of disdain. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you even see this in, in movies. Now the, the feminine hero is someone who has the the super strength of a male. It's just like a, a woman embodying all the characteristics of the male superhero. And now she's equal. But it's an ideal that like, actual females can't live up to. Mm -hmm. It's a world that you, you can't enter into. That's why um, it's in movies. What? That's why it's in movies. It's you a know. fantasy world. Um but there there was one there was one last part from Illich that I wanted to read. Um that I think is 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 helpful with the point of um, like we don't want to we don't want to go back and idolize the past either um, for fear that we would just assume that everything that they were doing was like, right. You can still judge constructions. Right. Yeah. Um, so he says the way the gender divide runs determines how closely the two genders mingle and on which territories and occasions. In one valley of the Alps, they meet on the threshing floor, he with the flail and she with the sieve. Farther down the river, this place is men's exclusive domain. As they are divided, so genders are also interwoven differently in each culture and time. They can rule separate territories and rarely intertwine, or they can be knotted like the lines in the Book of Kells. Sometimes no basket can be plated, no fire kindled, without the collaboration of two sets of hands. Each culture brings the genders together in its unique way. Uh, and especially that last line, each culture brings the genders together in its unique way. I think that can give us an idea of the way that we can um, creatively uh, construct a dance. It's not as if uh, there's things that are definitively women's work and definitively male work, especially because like he was saying, uh, one one valley away, one village away, it could be completely flip flopped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but there's still a, a fittingness that's there. You still have this dance, and I think you can even see in this passage a way to to um, critique different constructions. Maybe in your village, if uh, you're ruling separate territories and rarely intertwine, I mean that's just not as beautiful of a dance sure. as creating everything together. Sure. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's, it's even like dancing in a way such as like the man is like stepping on the toes of the woman all the time. Right. Um, that's an, an unjust construction. Totally. So we can still make, uh, those kinds of judgments and then also see that, uh, there was a wisdom that was there in these gendered worlds. Yeah. It's like the difference between modernity and pre-modernity is not justice and injustice, um, mm -hmm. on either side. The difference is that Modernity is involved in the task of denying gender, period. Mm -hmm. um, that it is trying to argue that um, gender is not a substantive reality, but this sort of secondary attribute of the fundamentally sexless unit. Mm -hmm. And thus, any um, differences can be managed unto a theoretical equality that never appears, but eventually will appear, right? Yep. And so that's the comparison being made. The fact that the that liberal model I just described is no good does not mean that the um, pre-liberal model is is uh, somehow sanctified. Right. And in fact, I mean, this was, and this is where I kind of disagree with Illich a lot. Of, a lot of the times where he describes the church 
uh, in this book as within a pre-modern world going in and seeing this sort of gendered dance and then imposing judgments mm -hmm. on it and saying something was bad or wrong. But I actually think that's precisely what we're trying to say is that it's not arbitrary. It's not relativistic. It's not mm -hmm. like everyone can just do whatever they want. It's that, yes, we are predisposed to this particular construction of, um, of gendered worlds um, for the sake of, of unity and peace, but these are liable to a universal judgment, um, and the church can make it, well, at least Catholics ought to believe that the church can make universal, yeah, universal judgments about um, our constructions. Yeah, and I think you you see that in history over time. So something I was keeping in mind when I was uh, reading the book, because I I didn't want to move into an idolization of the the past, and this is this is a solution. But um, the idea of what Christianity is doing when it's entering into the pagan world is that there's there's already a gendered dance that's happening here that is unique. Mm -hmm. um, but just like we saw with the the Greek conception, it's so easy to get it wrong and that there's a certain fittingness to the wrongness mm -hmm. and yet it's still wrong. Mm -hmm. So the church is entering into that and correcting it uh, because it's entering into a culture and cultures take time to develop. You see a really slow movement away from more pagan or like sexist structures uh, into a world where women actually do attain more freedom over time. And I, I think I, I see this especially um, with uh, medieval monasteries mm -hmm. where you you have the emergence of, of figures like Catherine of Siena or um, Hildegard uh, von Bingen. Um, she in particular, she was just brilliant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she was a scientist in many ways. She wrote gorgeous music. Uh, yeah. I, I highly suggest everyone to go listen to Hildegard von Bingen. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she she had a lot of um, uh, social power too. Um, she went around uh, kind of giving what we might call like modern day missions. Um, but I don't think, well, one, one way that you see Hildegard being framed is in this feminist notion like, oh, look at her, like standing up to the patriarchy at last. But I don't, I don't think that's how she was experienced. Like here was a, a woman and what was happening was not that she was like entering into the male space, but the, the female space was expanding mm -hmm. in a way uh, because celibate lifestyle was, was seen as something valuable. Here you have these women who are uh, gardening, who are thinkers, who are creating music and plays and uh, becoming intellectuals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seems apparent to me that in that flourishing of the female monastic life, you don't have um, the entry into a male space. I mean, this is like quite literally true with mm -hmm. the, regards to the Catholic church, because it's not that they're becoming priests. It's not that they're becoming bishops. There's like a specific, um, like nuns are specific, <laughs> sisters <Yeah>. are specific. <laughs> um, they're not versions of something, but mm -hmm. at the same time, um, a comparison can be made in a way that it's not the same when we think of like in a, in a modern way, the way we would describe this is like, well, we all want men and women to go to the same university, right? So like they'll, they are both students in the same way, like the gendered world is gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we have is the production of a certain kind of citizen. Um, and that's, 
again, like there's goods there. Of course there's goods there, mm -hmm. but the difference is very important. Like the difference between a blossoming of a gendered world as a gendered world and the difference in the subordination of a gendered world to a sexless ideal, which can attain certain goods. Absolutely. Um, but which I think is ultimately violent and damaging. Um, and that I do think the church judges that in the same way the church judged um, pre-modernity, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I like to think she did a good job, but you know, I'm not saying she can't have done a bad job in judgment in the same way she judges modernity. She judges mm -hmm. liberal modernity, um, which puts her obviously out of step with the times. Um, but if you read like Rerum Novarum or, or some of the social encyclicals, the critique of modern capitalism is almost always a critique of the loss of women's work of the loss of a, um, you know, this can only be read now from this like bitter, like, aren't they so patriarchal yeah. or or whatever. Um, but I, it does seem like the, it's not just the sympathetic, like the women are being left behind by capitalism, but it's the lamenting of a loss of real power and real specificity mm -hmm. to the female world that, um, at least for the popes, they were seeing industrialism bring on. Right. Cause there, there's a world in which you can flourish in a particular way when you're competitive within your own. And I think a very easy way to see this is in, in school and my experience in particular. So I went to an all female high school. Oh, cool. Uh, and it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we, I mean, we inhabited our own world and learning just occurred differently. And because you were in competition with, each other there was no impressing the boys i was around like you you start to see like the female class clowns emerge when mm. maybe they wouldn't if there was guys who were present i don't even know what that's like i mean like as i did uh public school i have a very bad memory but I, when you say that that's actually fascinating <laughs> because there is no female class clown in a public school that i can think of yeah, there's... If there is, the presumption would be that they were like a lesbian or like somehow quite literally like moving into the male space. Totally. Right. So there's just uh, I mean, I, I definitely experienced a, an you, ability to were you flourish. you the female class club? No. Okay, I'll check. I'll check. <laughs> I sat in the back of my history class and I, I knitted actually. Nice. I was taking a fibers class. <laughs> so I just did my homework in my, actually I always did homework in my classes. That's rad. Um, but, uh, I, you can you can see the same thing happening, I think, with younger education too. Um, when you presuppose a sexless world and everyone just learns the same way, um, at least in in like primary education, I think the female is definitely prioritized. The expectation is that mm -hmm. like you you sit still and you play nice, yeah. and little girls are just better at doing that, and so they end up excelling and i it's just kind of funny how the expectations with uh gender and education have kind of like flip-flopped at least like in middle school and in high school too the expectation was that like oh if you're the girl you're like obviously you're smarter and more responsible and you care more mm -hmm. yeah totally totally it's it is uh i don't think you'd find any argument here that the education that education system was doing was doing us wonders um okay well i think we're at a good stopping sp point to summarize construction's real mm -hmm. get into it go construct construct your gender for sure <laughs> but realize that what the construction of gender must mean even if, if the term itself is going to be meaningful is an intelligible relation to a given mm -hmm. an investigation of what's been given and that 
thing like our gender the male female it's given in stories it's given in origin stories um so we need to read those stories we need to listen to those stories and then to recognize the asymmetry that exists between us as the opportunity i think for peace right for communion um between two holes that can never just be identified within some larger umbrella uh, and that there's a beauty in that because it um allows us to to dance to relate the holes together um in, in a way that neither is totalizing the other um mm -hmm. and i think that's basically a vision of peace and so you can see right from the beginning a description of sexual difference as being good is also the description of a cosmos in which peace is from the beginning possible right in which like mm -hmm. a priori totalizing something totalizing one particular law um, one particular construction over and against everything else cannot be a way to attain like, a good world. Right. right. And and even the, the tension that's built in between these asymmetrical worlds, that is what creates the possibility of creative freedom and dance because now you have to respond to this mysterious given other. I think that's a really exciting vision. It is exciting. It seems to make a lot of sense out of why the church describes the whole movement of humanity and salvation itself as a marriage that mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when we look for the fitting analogy to, okay, well, what, what is happening when the human person in his vocation to construct the world does it in a good way, we can find no more fitting way of expressing that than, than as a, a marriage, mm -hmm. namely a asymmetrical union of worlds that cannot be reduced to each other. And that's a beautiful thing. So, the book is Gender by Ivan Illich. Get it. Read it. Go take dancing lessons. Yeah, I suppose so. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye.